welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books which influenced her the most on her life journey is Susan Bellchamber. Susan is a passionate and dedicated vision holder for a more beautiful world that works for all. She's been oscillating between her research and practice in psychology and economics throughout her career in the US government as an analyst and trade specialist, as an international consultant in the UK, as well as her work in therapeutic private practice and group facilitation. And Susan's current focus is on promoting positive personal and cultural change through unraveling the hidden knots of personal collective and intergenerational trauma with a specific focus on healing our relationship to money while envisioning new possibilities for well-being as we co-create a more beautiful world together. Susan, welcome. And yeah. I don't think I've ever read such a heartfelt, absolutely necessary um, <laughs> introduction to somebody, you know, about what you and your work is all about. Um, you know, who, mm. who, who doesn't want a more beautiful world? That works for us all. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Thanks, Sandy. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you. So let's let's start. Tell us what do books mean to you, and what was it like for you having to choose ten for this uh, this uh, project? Having listened to a number of your interviews with people, I'm I, I'm sorry to be redundant, but this was astonishing for me. This was a, just a beautiful route through my life and all of these, these factors that interweave together to, to make me me, right? And have all these thought forms. Because I've had a, a little bit different trajectory than most people because um, I've, I've done two careers that, I've, that I kind of start with one. I started with psychology and social work and right out of college. And then I went into international relations and economics. And then I went back to become a psychotherapist. And then currently now I'm interweaving the economics with the issues about trauma. So it's, I've gone back and forth. So that's, and these books helped me define you know, the, the journey, the pathway that I've taken, they really have been markers. So thank you so much for asking me to do it. It was such a beautiful. <laughs> it's one of the unexpected gifts of this that I never even thought of in the beginning. I mean, you know, I hear for guests that it is like a life review and it yeah. is, um, you know, a valuable exercise. But for me, going through people's lists, you know, I can join the dots if I know them like I know you, I can join the dots and say, wow, there are no accidents. You know, right. I mean, you think about these different careers and I've done the same thing, but there comes a point in life where they all come together and coalesce and you suddenly see all the links between what you've done and you weren't sure why you were doing it other than following an interest. And there exactly. it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Purpose. yeah. No, it's beautiful. And I'm just a lifetime learner, as I know you are, and many of the people that you interview are. So, and books, I've had 
the great good fortune to actually study with most of these people that I've, I've listed and which adds another whole dimension to it when you get to know them. And I've helped a couple of them actually edit the books that, that I've listed. And it's, they're just so essential. The written word, it's not, I guess, the primary thing on earth, but it, it really, it's, it's a reference point that really helps ground us, right? In the thought forms that we're carrying around with us. So thank you, Sandy. It was really fun. And I mean, it was work because condensing everything is so hard to 10 books. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it is an interesting thing. You know, the more I, I thought I knew everything there was to know about books. Until I started this book <laughs> you do <club>. know a lot. <laughs> but, um, you know, what I'm learning, too, is the magic of words, you know, the energy in that form of expression and yeah. it lives forever it's like something mm -hmm. has been encapsulated mm -hmm. and it's it's there forever you know as long right. as a book exists as long as in some form or another then um the wisdom uh the knowledge you know the um you know the things that we need to know it's all there for us right so it's yeah. given me a whole new appreciation for books yeah yeah. And I love, I love you've, what we're going to do is go through them in chronological order. I love the way that you're, you've, you know, also given us, which most people don't do, a um, mm. little bit about your life and how it moved along as well. But this particular book, I think, is an amazing book. And I don't think I'm mistaken in thinking that you are the only person so far that has brought this book up. Um, in their 10 best list and yet I'm gobsmacked that it isn't at the top along with you know some of the classics because it is a classic and that mm -hmm. is Anatomy of the Spirit, The Seven Stages of Power and Healing by Caroline Mace. Um, so tell us when this book came into your life because this was the one that kick-started it all wasn't it? Well in many ways it was. I, I mean it wasn't my first psychology book but you know, this is the spiritual, you know, the no BS spiritual book. So I, being the good student, you know, I, I'm, I spent a lot of years in academia, being the good student, you know, I, I'm, I spent a lot of years in academia. I, school was my sanctuary ever since I was little. So being a good student was really, important to me growing up and going mainstream, right? I really, even though I did social work for a while, I then went into economics and international trade stuff. So I was in my middle adulthood, I, I had separated spirit from matter, you know, which is what our culture often teaches us to do. So this book really introduced me to energy and the chakra systems, it just found me because it was a gift, it was gifted to me. And I was on vacation, I had time, it, a friend had, had taped it for me. It was still on these little cassette tapes back. It was the nineties, right? And I was listening to it and it was, <laughs> and I was hearing Carolyn Mace's voice and she is a powerhouse as you well know. 
she really is, especially when she's speaking. Her words are powerful, but she was. And Take it no was, prisoners. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she's like that in person too, although I think she may have mellowed out just a touch, um, as we do when we age sometimes. But yeah, no, this was, I, I got it. I got it somehow. I just kind of, it hit me that there was more to life than what we could, we could see, than what the school books talked to us about. So it was, I think I'll talk about this quite a lot. It was an entry point to the infinite for me. Was it a massive epiphany? I don't, it's hard to say massive or not. I mean, it was, it, it opened up a whole nother dimension for me. That's what it was. It was more that it was a portal to other, other ways of viewing, to, to an expansion. Whereas, you know, in academia, you tend to contract and focus and, you know, really get your, get your, all your work into a, a, a a narrower area of expertise. And this went, this, this kind of blew open some doors for me. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so it's been uh, called the boldest presentation today of energy medicine. Yeah. Yeah, I think it really should be on more people's lists. Okay, so number two, The Spectrum of Consciousness by Ken Wilbur. <laughs> this 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 is one of my favorite stories it really is this was I am I think you are too but I am a deep believer in synchronicity oh right yes yes yes, yes. I, that you don't there are some things that just seem non-negotiable that happen and this is what was happening to me so I was living in England I had married a Brit I'm living in England I decided I'm I'm moving away from the international relations. I had done the work in the government and then I had come to England and I'd done some, I would, did UK, uh, UK, Japan trade relations work with a consultancy for a while. And I just had gotten bored with it and I wanted to go back into psychology. So I entered a psychotherapeutic training program at Regents in London and I just had a baby. I just had Daniel, my my son, my who's now 29, just this week. And so getting from Wimbledon, where I lived, all the way up to Regent's Park yeah. was yeah. a challenge on the two. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and for a new mom leaving her kid, you know, it's tough. So I was, I must say that I was often late. And I I was in this program of what you guys call integrative or integrative and US speak, yeah, yeah uh, psychotherapy. And this was my one humanist course, which I was really looking forward to versus existential phenomenological courses, which were most of them. And there was a whole wonderful list of books to present and there were about 30 of us. And I got there late and I got the last book that was, you know, un left unchosen, which was The Spectrum of Consciousness by Ken Wilber. And because <laughs> this transpersonal stuff was just like, whoo, 
people just just did not want to touch it and and because it was it's daunting it's like you know like whoa that airy fairy stuff or something it's not and so I got this book and oh my god I I it was one of the biggest gifts I've ever received in my life, the synchronicity, because I wound up doing my dissertation on Ken Wilber and Robert Keegan. And it it has ever since this, this vantage point was really, um, it's powerful for me. The integral, the way of looking at the world through that lens has been really essential. And Ken had just written also Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality, which is this big honking book. I swear to God, it's that thick. And, you know, and I actually just devoured it. And it was, again, it was a, a sense of an opening to me about what was possible. And I think that is one of the things that is really, really wonderful for people to recognize is that there are multiple vantage points. We often get trapped in one, what he calls quadrant, you know, whether we look at a, the interior of self or the exterior and it, they're all there. They're all resonant. They're all, they, they really increase your possibility in all, all topics of spirituality and economics too, for that matter, you know? So that was that, and I got years later when Ken was a, he was a um, hermit for about three years. He, he didn't, he only saw his friends, Francis um, Vaughn and Roger Walsh um, and a, a couple of other people in writing, 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 pulling everything together. And uh, so I never thought I, you know, he never gave classes. But when I moved back to America, I, um, he was my, I went into this coaching program with Newfield Network and Julio Olaya, who is the founder of that, moved to Colorado and actually lived in Boulder. And that's where Ken was living right then. And Ken came to our first reunion. So I got to meet him and it was just magical. So I got to I was in conversation with Ken for a while and I actually got to tell him the story that nobody wanted to touch his book and he got a big laugh and gave me a hug. <laughs> yeah, synchronicity, eh? Oh man, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's really nice sometimes to think, think that we can't really take a step wrong, right? Yeah. That we're heading down paths. We need those reminders. Yes, we do. We definitely do. So book number three, Paths Beyond Ego, The Transpersonal Vision, Roger Walsh and yeah. Francis Vaughan. Yeah. yeah. Um, this one, 50 essays that apply transpersonal thinking to individual growth, psychotherapy, meditation, dreams, psychedelic science, ethics, philosophy, ecology, and service. Wide, huh? It's, it's, it's a hell of a book. I mean, and this was written in the 90s. Yeah, 1980, actually. Oh, really? It was okay. published, yeah. And we'll look at some of the contributors to it. I mean, Dalai Lama, Stanislav Graf, Ken Wilber, Daniel Goldman, Ram Das, Sri Aurobindo, Aldous Huxley, uh -huh. and Kenneth Ring. Yeah. I mean, what a nice eclectic mix there. Isn't it? Isn't it? And yeah. the thing is, is that 
Roger, I, I just, I, well, both of them are just beautiful writers and just visionaries. And Roger Walsh, I had been introduced to him, I forget the name of the book now, frankly, but where his therapist, his therapist was writing a book and actually used him as a, you know, an example of how people can change their lives. And Roger was a, um, a psychiatrist originally, and he went through this amazing awakening about what really, you know, a spiritual awakening. And he talks about it throughout the book and different aspects of it. And he has this one line at some point that, you know, and when I told people about this, they said, oh my God, you're gonna be one of those people that moves to California and sells candles on the beach. <laughs> and he said, well, and I did wind up moving to California. I haven't sold any candles yet, but you know, and he, he, he became a therapist and, and Frances Vaughn is also just brilliant. She, she has, and they both really have, they're two of, um, Ken Wilber's best friends, and they all kind of moved with each other and the exploration of consciousness. And it just so happens at the back of the book, it says, if you want to learn more, go to Common Boundary. And Common Boundary was a magazine, the Common Boundary between psychology, spirituality, and creativity. And they had a massive, one of the biggest conferences, certainly in kind of the new age conference. They brought all kinds of people together. I mean, like Carolyn Mace got one of her starts there and they had a magazine too. And I just, another synchronicity, when we moved to the, back to the States and my son was entering kindergarten, across the street, across this big river road is the building where Common Boundary was. And I'd gone to the, the conference um, and they had declared that they were, they were having a, a bad year. They had had, they were ahead of their time. They went into ecology too early. They, they actually had Al Gore the year before talk about the, the precursor to an inconvenient truth. And they just did not, make as much money in the conference as they usually did. So they were in decline and they were asking for help. So I said, oh, this is like meant to be, I'll go and help. And I, I went and helped them um, create their book um, and tried to keep it going. And actually one of my dearest friends um, who says Marianne Salisbury there, um, who's joining us today was, had just become the, I guess she was the managing director. I forget what her title was, but of Common Boundary at the time. And together she and I pulled together their last small conference to try and save them. But it, it was one of the highlights of my life of trying to getting into this world of, you know, kind of the new age consciousness and meeting people like um, Sharon Salzberg and, you know, it, Helen Palmer of the Enneagram guru. And um, yeah, so it was it was a big part of my life. It again, it was an expansion. So Roger and Francis, and they they were on the board of Common Boundary. So that's where they were involved with them too. Have you have you read it recently? Reread no. it? 
No, I haven't. No, it's interesting because I was looking it up earlier and I saw something that said, uh, this book is a clarion call for an expanded vision of human possibilities. In it, many of the best thinkers of our day ask us to renew the perennial search for self-knowledge and to discover the deeper meaning of our lives. I think, yes. you know, I mean, that is um, a universal statement and it's, it's, you know, a statement that is true for all time. However, I would be very interested if those authors were asked to write again, ah, uh, you yeah. know, what they, what they would say now. You know, what know. are we, uh, 40 years later? Yeah, well, but the perennial wisdom is just yeah. that, right? True, true. But I'm sure there would be a lot more they would want to add. I, I, I suspect so. And I would also suspect that the world is not in as good a place as they thought it might be back then, looking, you know, 40 Maybe. years ahead. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although we've had some leaps too, so... We have. So we shouldn't be surprised that the next book is Spiral Dynamics, Mastering <laughs> Values, Leadership and Change, Don Edward Beck and Christopher Cowan, right. published in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Again, um, I found Spiral Dynamics, I think, my dissertation was the, the spiral path of lifespan development. I chose that title because I do feel that we go, we have this spiral type effect yes. of, of our lives. You know, we yes. kind of move. And many of my favorite authors talk about that. Um, Robert Keegan talks about that we move from moments of, of expansion to moments of truce, he calls it, you know, and that we just we come back around and, and yeah, see things yeah. for the first time and again and again and again, right? Yeah, yeah. So the name Spiral Dynamics really, really connected with me. And then again, I love things that give you new lenses, new ways of questioning, right? And this one in particular, it's gonna be hard to, summarize spiral dynamics in a, in a few words, but it's as much a cultural shift as it is a, a personal shift. But we all, we all go through similar levels. And from the very basic, the bottom of just survival and, and there are, and then we move into a sense of of it's individual to collective, individual focus to collective focus and so forth. And, and our, what's happening in the world basically shifts us, which is, and so different, different nations are at different levels than others have more like they're, again, there's, the individual survival to tribal to power to traditional to post you know to modern to postmodern um, levels of consciousness things that we tend to know and so, you know like in the Middle East they're still often really at what they call memes value memes are at this what they call red meme which is a power meme of you know it's kind of like 
gangs, right? And us versus them, really, mm. yeah. And in America, we're kind of stuck between the traditionalist model, right? Of, of and the modern model of, of separation and traditional is kind of like the church, you know, police, things that, you know, towing the line, hierarchical. And then at the modern level, they blow that off and go, no, everybody's for themselves. You know, money is the only God. And, you know, and science, we don't, the separation of science and spirit is absolute at that level. And then we go to green meme, which is what it sounds like, which is, you know, we're many of us that are, are focused on ecological things and so forth. We want to go back to the collective and saying everything's equal, you know, we don't want any hierarchy at all, which actually mucks things up sometimes. And then at some level we go, oh, and all of these memes are fighting each other. They all feel they've got the absolute truth, right? You, you, right? We know this in our friends and various people. We see it in ourselves because yeah. we contain all of these. But at some point, hopefully, culturally, we flip into what they call second tier. And this idea that we can then see that we really need the health of all of these values. We need the health of all these memes. And that there's some, you know, and that's the, and we want to support the health of even what I was talking about, red meme, the power. Like, I know, I know about you, you've got serious passion. I've got serious fire in me too. I can go red meme really fast if I see children being abused, right? And that's useful. That's a healthy thing. We don't want to lose our power, but, you know, anyway, supporting health. So that, that has been again, another guiding force for me throughout my life. And I've, I've been part of this hub of spiral dynamics here in the Washington DC area for, God, about 20 years now that we take everything and we, we put it through the spiral lens. It's so much fun. I, I love doing it on a monthly basis. So yeah, I really, I hope I did. I feel like I didn't do it justice, but it's, it's a really important theory. It is indeed. Now, number five. New money for a new world. Bernard Lietar? Lietar, yeah. Lietar. And Stephen yeah. Belgian? Yes. Yeah, 2011. Yeah. And of course, Bernard, is it Bernard who recently passed? Bernard. Yeah, Bernard. they both, they are both passed at this point. They're both Bernard, passed. Yeah, Bernard passed um, just over two years ago. And he's he was one of the um, creators of the Euro. He had a vision, yeah, yeah. Uh, a Belgian banker that's had a lot of international experience. I forget how many languages he spoke, but, um, and I interviewed him many years ago now with my friend Katie Teague, who um, in, had put him in this wonderful movie, if you guys want to ever watch it, Money in Life, it's one of, still one of the best overviews of how money is made and uh, the vantage points. So, and Bernard, he had a mystical bent too, which he kind of didn't lead with a lot, but I loved it in him. And, and his, la his latter life was looking at complementary currencies throughout the world about what could we do to make money really work for us in a, in a better way. 
and he he often talks about yin versus yang currencies. He did some work in Bali, and I love this. I think this is part of what will bring us back to a sense of being humans again, where we, one of the things that when we think about money, one of the main roles it has is to measure, right? Measure wealth, measure things, measure material goods. But this is an issue that when we measure something, we only can measure things of finite value versus infinite value. The, you know, and so we don't capture everything. And in, in Bali, the yin currencies were, the yin currency was the communal currency that you could almost transpose money and, and time. So if you had more time than money, you could give your time. If you had more money than time, you could give your money. And, and you needed the yin currency to take part in the rituals because the Balinese have millions of rituals for everything, right? So that had to, you had to have some of this yin currency. And the yang currency was the, the hard, what we call hard currency that you can, you can exchange anywhere that is more universal, like the dollar or the pound or the yen. Um, but they are both have essential components. And to, unfortunately, in many of our Western societies, we've only gotten down to the yang currency element. We've, we've just negated the need for the others. And Bernard just, he was just such a deep thinker. Oh my God, he's truly one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. And to listen to him was a, a treat. And in this, another piece that he brought in that I've written about, and it's on my website, about what he considers resilience, which again, we're, we hear this word resilience, but what the heck is resilience, right? Well, he says that it is on one side of this equation, and this is true for all flow systems, because he, he did this wonderful research with this biological, I guess he was a bio, biologist, Yulanovitz, um, who, so all systems have this aspect to them that they have on one end of the spectrum is efficiency, right? So narrow, um, really, when we think about financial efficiency, we want to get more for less. We want people, you know, it's so much better for people to, you know, hire somebody that can work 10 hours than two people that can, you know. So you really want to streamline things. On the other end is resilience. And, and what we think of as resilience is actually it, it's, a, it's an interesting combination of diversity and interconnection. We don't like it much in Western culture. The economists hate it because they call it redundancy. And I mean, particularly in Britain, that's like you're, you're fired, right? You're made redundant. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got such a bad term, but damn it, you really need redundant systems of your grid, right? If one goes down, you're stuck, you're screwed. We need way more resilience and redundancy in our systems than we think we do. And our mistake is we, we sell our souls and go towards the efficiency equation and then we hit a brick wall and it's, you don't see it coming and it, there's collapse. And 
So you want to stay within this window, what he calls a window of viability between the two. You know, you want to have enough efficiency so that things don't bog down, like in water systems. You don't want to be in the swamp, right? You want some flow. But on the other hand, you need a lot of diversity and interconnection. And I think that's where we are finding our way back towards health right now, because yeah. we're recognizing that. Well, that's a model for society, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what I loved when I was looking up this book was um, a, a write-up that's, and I don't know whether this, I think this may have been Bernard himself who said this, real change is truly possible right now. We can end the threats to our environment and aid dramatically in its restoration. We can help provide meaningful work for all with opportunities that enhance and replenish the world around us. We can effectively address fundamental urban and rural concerns and the many diverse and often divergent needs of developing and developed nations alike. We can create a better world where life and all living systems flourish. This is not an idealistic dream, but is rather a pragmatic attainment, achievable within our very own lifetime. How many people, I wonder, are listening? Well, he's got a huge following around the world. Mm. One of, he never had children of his own, but I, he had, I was just part, we just had a, um, a memorial service for him earlier in this year. And people from all over the world came that are, you know, are building their own complementary currency see in their own place and he saw these young people that were doing this work as his children and it's just so dear that he left such a legacy and sandy he when i he went to dominate her did he, he yes he loved it he believed in the meridians he understood the lines he yeah. really, he he had a very mystical sense to him he just didn't lead with that much when did he go there i i don't know I, but I remember telling him that I was going and he's mm. going, oh yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's an amazing place. <laughs> yeah. mm. Sandy and I met in Damanhur, by the way. <laughs> yes, we did. Beautiful, beautiful place. Um, what did he think about cryptocurrency? Well, oh, this was one, he was, <laughs> this is an interesting story. He did a really interesting YouTube video, one of his last, um, I think maybe two years before he died, about cryptocurrency and about Bitcoin and the blockchain. He was interested in blockchain technology. And this, these young people, um, Galia Benardzi and her brother, and I forget who was the other founder, found him and said, we need you, we need you, because we're developing this cryptocurrency called Bancor, B-A-N-C-O-R. And I, Bernard was over the moon. He goes, oh my God, this, this can really work. We can, we can use this, this can change the world. He was so happy and he became one of their chief strategists for the last couple of years of his life. And I, um, I invested, I was there for the, what they call the initial coin offering, the ICO. Uh, a friend of mine actually bought some like uh, for me and, and it was like the biggest ICO in history up to that point. I forget how many, 
I think it was like 350 million inside of a, a couple, the first couple of hours and so forth. And then it took a nosedive, right? It, I thought I lost it all. And I've since gotten it back and it's like, it's, it's growing again. So it's like wild, but no, he had a lot of hope in it. But the problem with cryptocurrencies, it can create the same issues as that current money system. If you don't, there's no, there's no inherent um, benefit to it. If you don't, if you don't build in some things that keep it clean and keep it um, flowing. Mm. Okay, book number six um, by somebody that I is a personal hero of mine and a good friend of yours, um, Charles Eisenstein, The Ascent of Humanity, yeah. Civilization and the Human Sense of Self. You chose that book um, because? Well, that was his first big book. You know, that's the first one I read and that it's a big honking book. Um, and it has, Charles just did a gorgeous overview of the issue of separation, you know, which is one of the deepest roots of our problems as, as, yeah. as and culturally and individually, even that separation from, again, science and uh, spirit and matter and yeah. from us, from our, the earth, us from ourselves, right? Yeah. yeah. So that that's a really beautiful book. Um, I met Charles um, in 2010, and he very thoughtfully he he was living in Harrisburg at the time, and he he drove down to help us with the project for 101010, and he didn't wind up speaking at the event, but. Um, he became a friend and he would come down multiple other times. And this was a period where he was beginning to write sacred economics. Sacred economics, yeah. Yeah, so I was one of, you know, I, I remember editing the first chapters of this and it, that one changed my life. It, <laughs> well, my, the husband at the time did not much care for um, Charles's thinking because he, he actually had this idea that Bernard had too about what they call reverse interest. And that, I won't go into it a lot, but um, it's, it's this, uh, this sense that instead of accruing interest as you save or hoard, if you had the reverse of that, flow would happen. Um, there's a famous story about the miracle of Wurgel in Germany that you know nobody, everybody was out of work, nobody could do and you know afford anything, and the the town decided to do this reverse interest, and and it started every you know because what do you do when it's when you if you're losing money by not investing, you invest. So you look for things to invest in. You, you look at the, the young guy that's trying to do something inventive and you invest in him. So it's, it's, there's a flow and it, it really, it's a beautiful idea. And of course, governments don't like it much. Um, so they shut it down, but um, 
and I actually got to introduce, because Bernard was one of Charles's heroes. So, and I got to introduce the two of them, which was really fun. Um, but <laughs> anyway, it's, he's, he's, Charles is just brilliant. And the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. What a phrase that is, it just speaks to you. Mm. And the, the last chapter of that book is this vision that sounds like a, a fantasy, but when I've done um, workshops with him, um, we, we actually call people to do it together and it flows out of people, Sandy. This, this potential is there in us. It's, it's a really, these are spiritual books, these ideas about flow states, whether they're money or energy or what have you. For me, that's, they're, they're spiritual concepts. That's I think, feeling very passionate about and tender. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know what our audience believes, but uh, I see where religion has divided people and separated us from you know parts of ourselves and I think money does exactly the same thing exactly yeah 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 I don't know how are we doing for time can I read We're, something absolutely go ahead yes we've got plenty of yeah. time this this is I just picked this up again today thinking about doing this and I he talks about this is um, on page 318 of his book on sacred economics. Money and measure are indeed closely intertwined. Money originated, in fact, as a measure, a standardized, standardized quantities of commodities and metals. Of all the, th and I skip, of all the things that beings make and do for each other, it is the unquantifiable ones though that contribute most to human happiness. That's a, that's a mouthful right there. Um, quantifiable needs are also finite. Another reason to question a money system predicated on infinite growth of finite demand for finite resources, right? That's what screws us up because we're always chasing the buck and there's never enough. Qualitative needs are different. They're neither quantifiable nor finite. And in this realm that the ideology of ascent finds its true spiritual motivation. Growth on one level might end. The growth of the monetized realm, the growth of our appropriation of nature, but another kind of development will continue. The growth of the human spirit with its infinite need for beauty, love, connection, and knowledge. A zero growth future is not a stagnant future, no more than human life stagnates when a teenager grows her last inch at the age of 16. So, and he just says that it's the, this is so, this is so clear to me. It's the unmet qualitative needs that so impoverish us today. That's where we're impoverished. Mm -hmm. That's the difference between money and wealth, that we're impoverished in our, 
our whole, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is another brilliant thing that Bernard wrote about was the different forms of capital that we, everything kind of collapses into this capital as financial capital, but we have natural capital, we have social capital, we have many forms of capital that we negate when we, or we diminish in, in, in importance when we just fixate on the financial capital. And yeah, this is where we're shifting right now. I feel it. I, I, I've spoken to so many of, you know, I've been in so many things with Charles where the young, particularly the young people get this yes. so readily. Yeah, so anyway, thanks for listening. <laughs> no, I mean, this is fascinating and it's something, you know, that we need to look at. Yeah. We need to look at. You yeah. know, we can't, well, we can't avoid it. Okay, so number seven, Presence, Human Purpose and the Field of the Future by mm. Peter Senge, Otto Senge. Sharma. Mm -hmm. Senge. Senge, okay. Um, Joseph Jaworski. Yeah, Joe Jaworski. <laughs> and Betty Sue Flowers. Now, there's one I can pronounce. Um, four authors, and you call them four brilliant authors who held an ongoing conversation that turned into this beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I don't know how I found it, frankly. I, it was the the term presencing. We now it's become common parlance, right? But this is where it began, where they were literally going. So what what's real, and what matters? And they were having this deep conversation. And this is before Otto came up with theory U, um, which you probably know about. I don't know if anybody's thought of it as a spiritual book, but I do. He's Otto Scharmer. Peter Senge and Otto Scharmer, I think Peter might still be, I, I know Otto is, are professors at the Sloan School in MIT. Not the, you know, this. And Otto Scharmer literally would bring in source as a topic in these business conversations. Way back when when he was first beginning. I mean, this is astonishing. He's, he's a product of his lineage because his father was a biodynamic farmer. So he knows he often will, early days at least when he was describing, he was talking about the surface of the soil and what was going underneath, you know, in the invisible realm of soil and what makes for good soil. And, and he had this, magnificent way of bringing it into, okay, so this is how we look at things and we have to go down deep and we have to drop into the you. And, and he talks about moving past will, moving past ideas, will, and dropping down into this fertile unknown, right? The infinite. And then going up the you is like, okay, so when we get a great idea, let's, let's prototype it and move up and up and up. And it's, it's just beautiful. Um, and the idea of presencing is just the way that we can address everything by really, it's, it's dropping into our multiple ways of knowing. Right? Yeah. Mm. 
it's and you studied with all four of them yeah I did I got to it was very fun yeah I got to meet Peter and 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 Otto at Omega Institute and then I went down to Austin to study with Joe Jaworski and Betty Sue Flowers and um yeah Joe almost hired me I was he, he and I really clicked together and um but that unfortunately didn't happen but um because his CEO that I knew yeah was, there were personality things but it I've always thought of them as leading lights in my life about really Joe Jaworski wrote a book on synchronicity he interviewed he spent a lot of time with David Bohm and mm. yeah so he they all had a mystical edge, but they integrated into, these were all really, really well-regarded business people in their own rights too, right? So they, I, I love that about them, that they were, they could integrate those two sides. Yeah, they shouldn't need to. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good that they did. Yeah. Okay, so number eight. Creating a World That Works for All by Sharif Abdullah. Yeah. And that was written in 1999. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sharif, he's, he's a, just an amazing, interesting man. Um, African-American. I, I got to know him quite well. Uh, personally, well, I still know him quite well. We're not as close as we used to be, but it's, um, we did a lot. I, I helped him with one of his fictional books. We, we spent a lot of time um, talking, but again, the synchronicity is just too rich. That I, I was having a hip operation and I, I got this book from somewhere. I, I love the title, I think. And I, so I was, I was reading it like um, just a gift to myself, like a chapter a day, just as I was in recovery and contemplating it, right? Just loving it. And, and then my friend Tessa brought in the book to me when she came for a visit. And she goes, oh, here. And I go, oh, my God, I love this book. And she said, would you like to meet him? And I said, of course I would. And, and yeah, so we just started. He's just one of those people. I'm hoping you will interview him at some point because he's just, he's, he just has a, a breadth of knowledge that is just amazing and hopeful, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. That we can't stop with just getting ahead ourselves. It doesn't, at some point, this unity, you know, if we believe it all into quantum physics, we have to expand it out to everybody. Yeah, for sure. Um, something that he said, the world is a mess, the privileged few prosper, the masses suffer, and everyone feels spiritually empty. Most people would blame capitalism, racism, or some other ism. But according to Sharif, the problem is not ideology, it's exclusivity and mm. desire to stay separate from other people. So he didn't say that, but this was said about him. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, th this particular person who was uh, talking about his book said that uh, he takes a look at the mess we live in and presents a way out to restore yeah. balance to the earth and build community. He says people must stop blaming others embrace inclusivity and become menders I love that yes. he outlined three simple tests for enoughness exchangeability and common benefit 
to guide people as they transform themselves in the world. Perfect. It's it it's it's a gorgeous book. He's he's it's won a lot of prizes and he has this um, organization called Common Way. And he has for folks, he's done actually recently, just in the last, I, I don't know, the nine last nine months or so, he's done a lot of YouTubes. So if you look him up, he's done uh, some really beautiful work on inclusivity. And yeah, he he's a little bit, he did the the early Black Lives Matter stuff when he was 15 and into the early. And now he's talking about how he got a little bit in trouble with the Black Lives Matter folks because he was saying, look, it's not about identity politics. It's really unity, but that's like the going from, yeah. you know, yeah. the personal to the transpersonal. We have yeah. to do both. Yeah. So he's, yeah. he's really good at that. But he started writing fiction. Why? Yeah. He he wanted to talk about utopias and dystopias in a unique way. And he, ha I mean, he's, he's seriously brilliant. He has some of the most astonishingly creative ideas about, I mean, for all different ways about how to, how to use water, how to use energy. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's um, uh, Chronicles of the Upheavals was the one that I was very engaged with. And he's just written a, a, the, uh, a second um, uh, finishing of the story, so to speak. And it's just sometimes fiction is a way for people to take a look at what's happening. Like, oh my God, if we go down this path, this is what's gonna happen. And then how do we get out of it? It's, um, it's kind of like Starhawk wrote the fifth sacred thing. It's, it's, it has elements of similarity to that, that we, how do we, we go to the absolute depths of despair and how do we find our way back? Um, yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes to contemplate these things, but I think it's, it's important. And, and he's a, he's, a, he's an optimist, even despite everything he really is, I think. Yeah. Well, I hope I get to interview him too. Yeah, you'll like him. He'll like I'm you. Sure. I'm sure. So book number nine, Does Altruism Exist? Culture, Genes yeah. and the Welfare of Others by David Sloan Wilson. And you say that this was a fortuitous accident because it pretty much literally fell off a shelf into your life. Yeah, I was back in the days when we still had bookstores and Barnes and Noble, this giant Barnes and Noble, and I was waiting for a friend and looking through and I go, oh my God, what an interesting question. And David Sloan Wilson is just an amazing guy. I've, I only got to meet him very briefly at a conference. I've never gotten to study with him. So he's one of the ones that I don't have a personal relationship with per se. But I, I think as, as you know about me and as we know about each other, I've been, very fascinated with the idea of intentional community. Yeah. I've been longing for this. I feel that this is where we can experiment being full human beings and really bring together things that nourish us and that we can share in ways that, you know, instead of everybody having separate everything in this hyper individualism, you know, 
so I've been going around the world to Damanhur, to Tamara, to various places looking for intentional community. But I, in America at least, they often fail. And I'm going, and you know, go, oh my God, I don't. Why? Why do they Well, that's fail? the point. This is the point that David Sloan Wilson writes about and why it would, he and Eleanor Ostrom, who is the Nobel laureate, I forget what year now, is in the 80s, um, did research. They went around the globe looking at, at communities and what allowed them to be sustainable. And they, they figured out these all of these different potentials that they all needed. And if they had these things, then they could be sustainable. And, he, and David Sloan Wilson also looks at biological systems too, not just human systems. The, together, they looked at human systems. And I'm going, oh my God, we just have to recognize, you know, we need these things in our systems in order for them to be sustainable. Oftentimes, and this is, I think everybody listening will get this. One of the things with human systems that we don't do, that biological systems tend to do much better, at least the ones that live, are we don't, we don't protect from corruption from within. Mm. That's an interesting one. Yeah, we, you know, we, we have this enemies from without oftentimes, and we don't do a great job at that either, but um, particularly when it comes to making everything separate, like, you know, thinking that we're going to win the war, war on germs, right? That was an, an <laughs> that's a crazy idea. But yeah, so this is why there are, there are factors that we really have to take into account. And I can't rattle them off now, but they're, that's, it's a beautiful book. And he goes through it in such a beautiful way and, and talks about things that, that, the bottom line is that on a, when a one-off power trumps on, you know, the trumps the individual at a certain level, but collectively when we unite, that that is the thing that wins. And when we really, yeah. I, we can, what he talks about pro-social choices, and they've been doing research about this. His Evolution Institute does research on, on communities that do pro-social choices. And it's, it's quite, quite engaging. It's really quite inspiring what we can do when we choose. And just that we learn that zero-sum games, the idea that what's more for you is less for me, aren't that's just a made-up concept yeah. it's just that we based our whole freaking culture on it yeah <laughs> you know yeah. it doesn't have to be that way we can do what I've I've I don't know if anybody's ever used this term but I use it in some of my writings collaborative synergy is a radically different concept and just so much more useful to the more beautiful world than a zero-sum game. Yeah. I'm curious to know because, you know, here we have Findhorn, which is a very old community, um, Damanhur, you know, which is 40-plus years 
or more. Um, is it just the America, the same way. in America? They're all crumbling, are they? No, 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 they aren't. I'm saying uh, the ones in America. No, and why? And you, why America? What is what is the difference? Because we have this hyper individualism, right? Where as one, I, I, one of my colleagues, or I heard it somewhere. Um, we're all orphans here in America. We're cut off from our roots. Even the Native Americans that have the the link with the earth here have been thrown off the earth, their place. I think we, I froze a little bit. I, I'm sorry about that. Are we back? Yeah, no, we can hear you. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we've, we're all this separation and the hyper-individualism. Just it's, it corrodes this concept of, of the potential of us working together. Now, there are eco-villages and so forth that are setting up, but they often run into, they're often started out by a, 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 a charismatic leader or somebody that had the money and then something happens and it breaks down. At least it's it's kind of a general story. In fact, Charles and Stella Eisenstein, we were we were trying to create a community, and we we were you know it was something that we were gung ho trying to do, and it just ran into too many roadblocks at the moment. Mm. And I still have hope. I'm I'm look I'm gonna keep going after this until the day I die. I hope I it, it I it's. It's it's changing. I think we're changing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. More and more people are looking for this. Yeah. Okay. So book number ten, the power of we, yeah. awakening in the relational field, by Thomas. Now, do you pronounce it Hubler or Hubel? Hubel. This is really Hubel. interesting because I was checking earlier on, and there are a number of different pronunciations, including, believe it or not, and I've never come across this one a pronunciation that is H-U-B-L. Yes. Literally, that's the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah that's, yes. that's, that's how, and yes. it's sometimes people say hubble, but it has the, what is it, the umlaut over the U or whatever? Yes. The double, yeah. 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 yeah, so yeah. that's why they add an E oftentimes in English yeah. non-Germanic speaking yeah. countries. Mm. Yeah, Thomas Hubel, uh, this is, this is a beautiful place because this is brings me up to current time. Yeah, uh, Thomas is a mystic in the marketplace. He started out as a mystical teacher, and he just um, he just put out a book this past year on collective trauma, and that he's we've run two big summits, collective trauma summits with hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, big things. And he's, he's had conversations with probably all the main trauma um, researchers and practitioners, um, many of them at least in the world. So here's the thing, uh, and this is, and Thomas, Thomas, um, he's just an extraordinary, human being um, and the answers. So 
The question is, why can't we make better decisions to get to the world that we want, to get to the more beautiful world? The answer is, you know, separation. We talked about that. But this is where trauma enters. This is why we, it's mandatory, I think, for all of us spiritual folks to understand about trauma. Because trauma is the glue that holds the very things together that keep us apart. It essentially locks in separation, trauma. It, it, it really is at the base of a lot of our collective despair. It's, it's at the base of our disempowerment and the world that is the opposite of the more beautiful world, the more horrible world we know is possible. It's it that leads us to a sense of disempowerment and like life sucks, but you, you know, so what you, you, you have to get on with it. It's just normalized. Trauma happens to us personally, intergenerationally and collectively. I talk a lot about this on my website, Money and Trauma. The, and we all, you know, this is the thing about trauma like money. These are topics like, no, we don't want to deal with it. We, <laughs> I'm coming to this, this Sandy to hear spiritual things that inspire me. Not, don't tell me about money and trauma. But, but this is a portal to understanding what has stopped us out. You know, it's not, it's really where spirit and matter find each other and where we can go to really delve in. Because if we don't unravel this, it just, it blinds us. It's like going through the world blinded and, you know, deaf and dumb. And I, I really, the more I do this work, the more I'm, I'm amazed by it. I've done work, um, with a number of colleagues, you know, and doing it with family constellations, a look at money and looking at the archetypes that we find in our lineage. And this is the thing we found out through epigenetic research and so forth, that this, um, what is her name? Rachel Yehuda, um, it's a, she's a medical doctor in, um, I forget the, in New York. And she's done research who, looking at the DNA of Holocaust survivors and the, and the generations since. And she's found actual DNA changes in the grandchildren of these Holocaust survivors. We carry trauma in our very DNA. Yes, we do. And I mean, that's mind boggling. And the, and the, so we all have it, whether we're rich as hell or, or, you know, barely can put a meal on the table. We all have this in our system because somewhere in your history, somewhere, you, your relatives are had to really struggle with, with survival. And thankfully, resilience is also in our DNA, you know, because we're products of survivors. You know, so that's, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful balancing act that we have going on. 
And collectively, collective trauma, we don't even see sometimes, you know, I mean, money is a collective trauma in our lives that because we don't even sometimes even question it, right? That's just how things are. And, you know, inequality, racial, gender, you name it. Mm -hmm. I, trauma keeps us trapped in our, our, our issue with, you know, the earth and how we're destroying it, our ecological trauma. So this is the thing that really looking at this deeply and the way that we, the way trauma forms is in relationship. We talk about um, developmental trauma of all of us that at some level, something happened. Our parents are imperfect creatures and something happened, or we just, we are born into the collective trauma of our culture. You know, you can't get away from that. Yeah. But we can, in relationship, begin to heal it too. And that so many of us began to explore this in, you know, our relationships with therapists or coaches or something. This is a way forward. But for me, I really, I've been doing work with groups, small groups, sometimes larger groups. Um, Thank God for Zoom, because you can break out big groups into, you know, triads and so forth. That's a, a lot of the work I do, a lot of the work Thomas does too. And together we begin to look at where trauma has led us and where when we're triggered by something, inevitably it's it, it you can you can trace its roots down to where it originated in us. I just had a call with him on Monday with our team of facilitators of the Pocket Project. Look at pocketproject.org, folks. It's it's beautiful and this work we're doing. Um, and we were one woman brought up brilliant. These are wonderful, wonderful practitioners. Have years and years and years of practice and therapy remediation or you know many different things one was talking about grief as a substance of where we're going through these levels of grief right now in our culture that we're finding in in these international labs i i helped to facilitate one on racialized trauma and one on immigration the grief and trauma in these fields intense and we're beginning beginning to uncover some of it and it's tough work it's not easy work but it's such beautiful work, it has to be done. But this one woman was talking about grief and then she goes, oh my God, it's in me. And she traced it down with Thomas to where it showed up in her life and she got it and go, oh, I can feel that. I can do, I can see it now. And then maybe I don't have to be as triggered by it now. Yeah. And we learned this, this thing about regulation, our own, you know, you probably know about polyvagal theory about that we can do this personal regulation, but even better, we co-regulate together as a community. For yeah. me, the more beautiful world begins with this capacity to co-regulate with each other, because then there's almost nothing we can't do. Mm. Yeah. And this um, is actually a set of CDs. It's not a written book, is it? Right. Not, not, yeah. no, that was, yeah. a, that was, sounds true. But his, he, yeah. he, it is, there is a written book now that he talks Oh, there about. is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't find it when I was looking today. Well, it so, was his, if you, if you go on whatever, Google um, Thomas Hubel and his book, um, 
I, I don't have the exact title right now, but it's on collective trauma. Okay. So that brings us to the end of your 10 lists, although yeah. it really is no end for you because, I mean, these truly have um, turned into your life work in a sense, haven't they? I yeah. mean, yeah. it's all coalesced in what you're doing now um, yes. with your website, Money and Trauma. Right. Yeah. yeah. And resilience, of course. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you've you've touched upon it. You've said, yes. you know, constellation work, you, you know, the events that you're doing. What yes. else do we need to know? Well, um, I. I just love this work. It's it's my little you know, it's where my my interests kind of overlap right now for the moment. Um, I'm always kind of <laughs> looking at new things all the time. But I'm, for instance, right now, I can invite people to something that I'm doing um, just in a little in, introductory taster with a financial planner friend that Water's Edge, um, she's, I love this woman so much, Susan, so that because she, she looks at financial planning from a vantage point of the concrete. And yes, we need to make money. And she has this mystical side to her that I think all the great investors have. George Soros had it, John yeah. Templeton had it, that they would feel things in their body when yeah. they were yeah. making good decisions. She has this and her mission is to help women in particular, that women that are doing important work in the world, communal work, um, particularly that she wants to help them succeed. So she has that vantage point. And I'm going to, we're going to start a series on this topic. And we're not going to call it money and trauma because she's afraid that's going to scare her clients at first. But we can look about what our reaction and how to right size money in your life. That is kind of where a lot of people that are not quite down the spiritual path yet can we know that, right? We need to right-size money because we don't want, some of the richest people on earth are still the ones that, that are totally screwed up about money. Because if this is something, I, I haven't seen anybody else do this yet. Um, I think it's coming, probably some of your friends have, but I've studied a bit about attachment theory through the years. Yeah. yeah. And you know, we think of it as, as attachment, you know, about whether we have healthy attachment or anxious attachment or disorganized attachment, you know, in children a lot. Bowlby, one of the Brits, really did a lot of work on this early on about our attachment to mother. Yeah. And, but it leaves all of us at different styles of attachment. And again, in, and I'm going to own it for America and our, our culture, of the hyper-individualism and this fixation on yang currency, you know, the, the hard currency, we, we, we mess up and we think that we can use money as an attachment vehicle, that it'll keep us safe, that it'll keep us, you know, it'll meet all of our needs. And as soon as you make the mistake of putting that at the front of your train and thinking nothing else matters, you are in a form of addiction that kills people. It, 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 it's a source of addiction and misery 
frankly. It's like the Koch brothers, well, one of them is dead now, but in America, you know, ultra rich people. It's never enough. There's never enough. That not that sound like a prison to you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, that's it. Your entire life is ruled by that. Right. Yeah. You know, and to have that big hole in you that you can never fill. Exactly. That exactly. must be so painful. Yeah. And, and, the, and the world is telling you that that's what you're supposed to want. You know, you don't, that you've sold your soul for this and now you're miserable. It's like, I'm at some point, I'm going to write a renewed version of the Midas story with this. I started one, I'm gonna, I'll have, it's cause that's what it's like right now. Um, So yeah, so I'm doing, I'm doing this thing with financial advisors. I think all financial advisors really need to help people have a sense of what, what is, the difference between money and wealth. Yeah. True wealth. Absolutely. Is that I think people are beginning to get it now. Now we've got a foot in each camp. I mean, I still have to, you know, we have to pay our mortgage. We have to pay our rent. You know, the, we can't buy bread with social capital at the moment. Well, yeah, we can probably because, you know, if in community, you can, you can do trades. Right. But um, yeah. So I'm doing, that with financial and folks. you're running events and you're also doing personal coaching yeah i'm doing personal coaching i'm helping people it's very interesting to help people delve into individually their their archetypes about money and where how they right size money on themselves i do that and in the fall i'm doing another series i love doing series i love to co-facilitate it's my sweet spot i i prefer to work with other people that i i can ping off of and mm-hmm. my um dear friend sam vedam randalls and i um have done something and we intersperse um constellations work we we actually play out um archetypes and so forth and money together that we uh, we have a lot of fun together and that's powerful work constellation theory. work very powerful. It really is because it, it gets beneath the surface. Yes. yes. And you can, when we can see things out there, you know, and have other thing, things play out out there, it somehow, it releases us from their power, I think, sometimes. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And more than that, it shows you how connected we all are. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because this whole... Charles Eisenstein talks about at the end of many of his books, the age of reunion. And maybe this is where we're probably way over time now, but- um, We'll get in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Richard Tarnas uh, also talks about this, this re-enchantment of the universe, which has similar corollary ideas that we begin to see things at the interconnections versus the separations. Our first, you know, in research and science, that's how we do research. We separate out, right? And, and hold different variables separately. And, and we have a, a really hard time having more than a few variables at once because we with the interaction and the complexity kind of overwhelms that system of research. But 
In the age of reunion, we begin to see the interconnections. This is, I don't know if you, are you going to ask me what I'm currently reading? Is that how you end? I, ab I absolutely am. Okay. <laughs> Can I bring it in now? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm reading this. Um, it's taken me a while to get through this book because it's so deep. But um, Paul Levy wrote Quantum Revelations. And our, somebody that I have studied with, Jean Houston, wrote the foreword for. And she said it's one of the best books she's read, most important books she's read. And Quantum Revelations is about this interconnection. It's the quantum, right? I mean, it's, it's how everything is connected. And when we have, when we move from the finite, this fixation on the finite, and open the door to the infinite, I mean, this is my practice. This is the energy work that I do now with a wonderful man named Dan Amons that Whereas the finite, we make enemies and boundaries, right? And it's useful. I mean, we, we sometimes need these things. We sometimes need offense. But in the infinite, we only have potentials and have more options. And, you know, but it takes a humility that it's not the world revolving around us, right? <laughs> So Quantum Revelations I'm reading right now. I got to give a plug for our friend, Kate Montana. And uh, who's I'm, been on this. Uh, um, she was in an episode last year. Yeah. Yeah. One of your first. Right. And uh, Apollo and me. I, it's a it's fiction again. But oh, my God, I, I love this book. And then I somebody else you interviewed. I just was given this book, The Book of Awakening by Mark Nepo. Oh, right. Okay. I, I can't believe I did not own this book before this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 20, it's, it's, it's 20 a year. And it's, it's a everyday reading. Yeah. And Mark, yeah. That's his real famous one, isn't it? The yeah. International bestseller. Yeah. yeah. Um, I interviewed him a few months ago about, and I can't remember, sadly, the title of the book. But it was a book that just blew me away because he had these very small chapters. I think it was something like 52 chapters, quite short, but they were all on little stories, but really important things to contemplate. And mm -hmm. he encouraged you to, you know, take a walk with a friend and share your own thoughts about this and um oh i don't know this one I'll, I've, had, I'll, I've had other of his books they're beautiful this beautiful. one was brilliant brilliant you know i like a book that grabs me and i can't get it out of my head my you know bookworms um and i had put put off interviewing mark for a long time and i was so so sorry that I'd done that when I did interview him and read this particular book because it was like a little treasure that had I'd been sitting on for months and um, it was just amazing you know the things that just I can't even begin to you know think of some of them just small things but big things to contemplate and really think about um, just kept my mind going for for weeks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, check it out and send you this, the title. 
Yeah, great. Because, I mean, his story was one of near death, right? Yeah. I mean, and I hope that we can learn from others more than having to hit these major blockages ourselves. I, I feel that I do sometimes get these grace moments of having insights to things that I don't need to have the full experience, right? I, I get a taste of things, that's how I, thank you, uh, that I sometimes get to learn from. But he, he is just a beautiful man that he has made the most of this connection. And become, you become fearless, I think, when you face death at that level. And, and you have access to the infinite. And, you know, that's one of the other great gifts of books, isn't it? That we don't have to have the experience. Right. Exactly. Ourselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, we can get all the benefits of the experience. Yeah. 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 Thank well, you Susan, for doing this, this, because I think you are giving this gift in your own way, Sandy. You're giving this huge gift to the universe of exposing us all to these other possibilities like you've got this you've got me I'm gonna go and buy this new Mark Nepo book right away and and yeah thank you so much well we're all doing that and that's the whole point of the book club is you know to share the things that moved us so that others can resonate with them or not right, right. you know and and that's what I love about it because people get to feel the authenticity of the contributors and how you know how these books have really impacted them so, um, you know, I think that's the best way to get our recommendations of books. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Susan. Um, it's been an absolute delight having this time with you. Great excuse to spend some time with you. Um, <laughs> and if anyone wants to know more about you and your work, they can go to moneyandtrauma.com. And I certainly encourage them to do that. And uh, for those of you watching, thank you for joining us. If you are new to the book club and you would like to participate in these weekly uh, episodes where we get to go behind the stories, the stories behind the stories, so to speak, and how they impacted people, then go to the website sedgebeer.com, click on the No BS Spiritual Book Club tab, and you will find out how to sign up. And also we have a very special Save Your Space sign up list, which is available on the video page. So you'll find Susan's edited video there next week and you can join up, save your space for the next one. Yay. That's it for today, Susan. Thanks. Thank you, I'll talk to you again soon. Yes. And everybody thank else, you, thank everybody. you. Thanks very much for being here.